Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and we are so excited for this guest because we are always learning about how to help our English learners. And this guest is going to share challenges facing English learners, how we support these students with literacy instruction aligned to reading science. And I know everyone out there wants to hear this information. So I cannot wait for this. Melissa, I know you're excited. (laughs) I'm very excited. I've been listening to her on other podcasts, so I'm excited that I get to talk to her now. (laughs) Yes. I actually Um, am wondering, is there anything that she doesn't do or hasn't done? Because I don't think so. Oh my gosh. Listen to this. It's stunning. (laughs) I know. I need to to cue you up for this. mm -hmm. Go ahead. (laughs) So I guess today is Elsa Cardenas Hagen, and she is a bilingual speech language pathologist, a certified teacher, dyslexia therapist, certified academic language therapist, qualified instructor and president of the Valley Speech Language and Learning Center in Brownsville, Texas, and I'm out of breath already. Author. Author (laughs) of the fabulous newish book, Literacy Foundations for English Learners, A Comprehensive Guide to Evidence-Based Instruction, which is fabulous. So it is fabulous. So, so impressed by that list of amazing things that she's done in her life. (laughs) Yeah. So Elsa, without further ado, welcome to the podcast. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Glad everything's working smoothly so far, but excited to talk about this very important subject. And, you know, I just feel like I've been talking about this for a couple of decades, but now more than ever, we're finding this need for all educators to have this information so that we can really meet the needs of the diverse population of students that we have in our schools today. And so I really want to pass on this message and these wonderful tips. And and thank you for talking about the book, because the book was really meant to bring research to practice. And I was hoping that also before you become an educator that, you know, professors and universities would use this as one of their courses. Mm -hmm. And I've written out a whole syllabus, you know, like here's what you do (laughs) week one, week two, week three, week four, and it comes with the book. And just, we need to be prepared to meet the needs of these students. Yeah. And I would throw in there a growing population. I mean, when I moved to Baltimore in 2005, um, there was very few English learners and maybe just in like one or two schools had all of our English learner populations. And now every single school in Baltimore has an English learner population. That's right. That's right. So increasing number and also increasing number of other languages. We know that Spanish is still the most common language. We're getting close to 80%. You know, it's a little under 80%. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we have Arabic, we have Vietnamese is like two and three, Mm -hmm. but also we have to think about the current, you know, uh, migration and how the United States has opened its arms to um, countries that are war torn. And, and yeah. um, so we're going to need to be prepared and, and uh, really try to bring in some evidence-based practices into our classrooms. Yeah. 
funny story. When I first started teaching, I taught in New Orleans and the English learner population there was Vietnamese. And I was so unprepared because I, I mean, it just felt like such a different language <laughs> that I didn't even know where no. to start. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But Vietnamese has sounds and yes. some of those sounds transfer to our language and we can make connections. <laughs> All right. This is what I needed to know. <laughs> That's what yes, I feel like yes. your book, your book shows a, a lot for me, Elsa, is it shows that I can build confidence as an educator with knowledge that you provided. So I'm really excited to talk about it because I felt like it built my confidence as well as built my knowledge, but it was a really, it's a really great reference. Like I imagine myself in the classroom having a students being like, Oh my gosh, I need to reference Elsa's book because I need, I need to know what, what I'm doing. And I just thought your book did that so well. So I want to say thank you for that before we start. Or before we really dig in, I should say. <laughs> right, right. Um, it, very important, and and that's. Uh, I think I think what you're saying is so important because really, Lori, we have to we have to realize that we we may not be you can't be an expert at everything, but if there's an area that we need to learn about, it's at your fingertips. You can read, you can learn, and then I. We're lifelong learners, and also our teach our students teach us. That's why I still work with students uh, that have, you know, reading difficulties because I learn from them as well as them learning from me. Uh, but we're lifelong learners, and I think I think this book uh, really, you know, put it in the hands of our educators and hopefully learn about these evidence based practices that we need to implement and how it's not that difficult to implement. Yeah, it's very empowering. I felt like yeah. when I was reading it, I felt so empowered with knowledge. So I would love to start us off with a really important question, but it's also a really big one. <laughs> How does the science of reading, quote, science of reading, work for English learners? Right. So I'm so glad you asked that. There's been, you know, questions about that. And I want to say that I've had the privilege um, to work on national research teams, uh, specifically working with Spanish-speaking English learners. I will say that. I've not worked in big research, you know, large-scale studies with speakers of Arabic or Vietnamese, which are other common languages, but Spanish. And in doing that work and in implementing the science of reading and implementing structured literacy, and I want to, I want to just tell you the term structured literacy and where it comes from. Uh, in, in, in June of 2014 at the International Dyslexia Association, it was really determined that we really don't want to have a very narrow view of reading of literacy, that we needed to be comprehensive in our approach and we really didn't need to get the message out. And through focus groups and uh, leadership, that's how structured literacy in June of 2014, structured literacy was developed, that term. But what did that term, what was it to encompass? It was to encompass that language 
right, is necessary for reading. And that we have these components of language, the sounds, which we call phonology, the words and their meanings, which we call semantics. Oh, understanding that within words, there's these small meaning units that can be so beneficial for expanding your vocabulary, but also that understanding how words work in a language and how you use it that syntax, that pragmatics. And every language has its own, uh, its own history, its own culture, its own use. So, but if we build from language, we know that language supports literacy, but also literacy supports language. And the idea of structured literacy was to really ensure that we are coming from this language framework to address literacy. And oftentimes, I think there's a misconception that when we talk about science of reading or that structured literacy instruction, that we're only talking about small parts of the whole picture, that we're Mm -hmm. only talking about phonological awareness and phonics. And no one should be spending like 90 minutes on phonological awareness and phonics. It's a small part of that whole block of time that our teachers have to implement, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's the misconception. And we never have said that one size fits all. No, we've got to know our student and we have to know where are they in this language continuum and where are they on that literacy continuum? And let's use language for literacy and literacy for language. And so in our studies, we you know, worked with students in kindergarten, in first grade, in second grade, in third grade, and followed them. And we were able to demonstrate some good results in their reading, their fluency, their comprehension, and their language. That's so funny. Um, I'm so glad you dove in there because when I listened to you on the other podcasts, I was, I was like, she, she makes this distinction between language and literacy that is probably so obvious to you, right? <laughs> but I think people use the, those terms synonymously sometimes like, oh yeah, language literacy. It's all the same, all in the same block, you know? Um, but to really like make that distinction and, and, you know, learning the language leading to literacy. Um, right. It's, it's really important. And can you, do you have anything to add? And we can, I, you know, really, Melissa, and I don't want us to think that this occurs, you know, when we're in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, that it's going to occur sequentially. Mm-hmm. What, as we're in those early years of kindergarten and first grade, we're becoming very aware of very clearly aware of how the sounds of our language and the words of our language are represented in print Mm -hmm. and how that print system works. Uh, But all the while, we need to also be expanding our listening comprehension, our world knowledge, our background knowledge, our vocabulary. Uh, and so really linking. So why is the, why are the sounds of the language important? Well, I've got to process the sounds to produce the sounds. And we know then that those sounds, right, are, we, when we hear those sounds, we can encode them and map them and put those letters to them and be able to write. And yes, literacy does include writing. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> but if we take it from, you know, language is a natural process, you know, humans are meant to speak. 
And, and, you know, this whole idea of literacy, it's invented, right? But it is language-based. And all the brain researchers are really, you know, describing and doing these wonderful um, ways of showing us exactly what's going on in the brain. And those language centers are activated during literacy. I have so many questions about that. <laughs> can you Can you share what that what that means and like, what does that look like? What does that mean? And I, I don't know if there's a, a more fancy term that you might be able to share that <laughs> it, maybe is it called, I'm imagining it being like neuroscience or something, you know, I don't know. <laughs> right. <clears throat> and so we have, we're so fortunate in our country and in other countries uh, that uh, neuroscientists, these researchers have really, you know, use things like functional MRIs to look at what's happening in the brain during reading. And very clearly it's demonstrated that, oh, you know, here's these, you know, left temporal parietal lobes getting activated so that, you know, and I always tell my husband, if I ever have a stroke, don't let anything happen to the left side of my brain. That's all your language. It's okay. I don't care too much about the right and all those numbers. <laughs> and oh, I hope my frontal lobes are okay. That means I can pay attention and problem solve. And, but it really is demonstrating, it really is demonstrating that you know, your eyes get activated in the backside in that occipital lobe. Then, you know, this, you know, kind of left hemisphere with that, you know, temporal parietal region and then on to the frontal lobes. And that even students that have um, dyslexia, they like, for example, they demonstrate how, wow, they really activate that right frontal part of their brain. And after intervention, we see that, oh, now they're really getting, you know, how we read. But, you know, uh, I think I think uh, Dr. John Gabrielli says, you know, I think there's more of a story to talk about what's going on in that right frontal part to understand, you know, those that remediate well and learn to read well, you know, they're, they're, you know, we're not all the same in the brain. And so they're using, you know, not only now that, you know, that left hemisphere region, but also that right frontal region. It's so fascinating. We're going to continue to learn from these wonderful neuroscientists, but it's just uh, fascinating to see that and to see how important language is um, to uh, reading. And so I don't, I don't want it ever to be construed that I'm a, what they, they've called me before a phonicator. <laughs> I'm not just a phonicator all about, you know, the sounds and phonics, but there's this window of opportunity in these early years, you know, mm -hmm. really specifically, uh, Try, you know, we want our students to be reading by first grade, right? In kindergarten, you know, kindergarten teachers, they've always done it, beautiful things like rhyming and alliteration and read alouds and working on language. And that's all so important because we know that for reading, we have that simple view of reading between, oh, I'm going to be able to see that print on the page, decode that, and I've got to have language comprehension. And so what's so beautiful is our kindergarten teachers have done this forever and ever and ever. But now we're do we want to really tie that to, okay, we're doing this. Now let's link it to uh, the print and let's link it to being able to spell and write and 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 move that into that syntax and composition. And so that kindergarten and first grade year are essential uh, for doing that. And then as we look at those stages, you know, by the time a child's in third grade, they're reading to learn all 
all across the content areas, but we gave them that small window of opportunity in kindergarten and first grade. And we really mm-hmm. want this stress. And I'm not saying they're going to be readers in kindergarten, but certainly by the end of first grade, they are readers and mm-hmm. they know how to read. And, and as they move through, they're going to read to learn. And if students aren't in your, like, so let's say I'm in third and fourth grade, right? And I've got some students who aren't reading like my their peers. Then I've got to do some extra work, get them in that small group instruction and fig- and differentiate the instruction. Okay, where exactly is the breakdown? Let's address it and let's make sure that they're solid in their reading. Because if you don't have those foundational skills, your fluency will suffer. You're, 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 you're not going to read widely. Your reading comprehension will suffer. You're reading vocabulary. So we've got to get at this during those early years. And I'm not saying that you're going to do phonics and phonological awareness all throughout your academic years. It's this small window of opportunity. However, if we have students that are in upper grades and they're struggling, we need to figure out why and address those skills. So I'm thinking about if I'm a kindergarten, first, second grade teacher, and I know that teaching some of these skills can be difficult even for English speakers, right? People, students that are coming to me speaking English their whole lives and still having trouble connecting the sounds to the words on the page. Um, what is different, challenging? Maybe there's some strengths um, when you're getting students who are also just learning the English language, right? That they right. come speaking a different language. <clears throat> so what I want to say about that is it's so difficult when you're learning another language. So I'll, I'll just give an example. In the Spanish language, we say there's about 22 sounds. Some will say 24. In the English language, we say 44 sounds. Some will say up to 46. Either yeah. way that you look at it, English has doubled the number way of sounds more. than a Spanish language. And the same is yeah. true for Arabic and Vietnamese. English has more sounds than Arabic and Vietnamese, yeah. right? However... What's so wonderful and what we want educators out there to be able to understand and to do is to learn. So I have 19 sounds in my home language of Spanish that transfer directly to the English language. So let's capitalize upon I'm, I'm an asset yeah. because I'm multilingual. So let's capitalize and let's take it from that framework of, okay, yeah. they have these sounds. Let's make those sound connections. And some of those sounds are represented, right, by the same print, by the same graphemes, mm-hmm. by the same letters. And, and you said 19 out of like 22? 22. So I've got 19 sounds that transfer. And... And I can capitalize upon that. But what is different? What is different, for example, between the languages of Spanish and English? What do you have to teach me explicitly and Mm -hmm. systematically? Well, in the Spanish language, I only have five vowels, so I never really have to think about syllable types and syllable you know, so so I didn't ever have to learn, oh, this is a closed syllable, and that's how you know when to say the short vowel. And, oh, this mm-hmm. is an open syllable. It ends in a vowel. That's when you know to say the long. I wish somebody had taught me that. Then I wouldn't have made the mistakes <laughs> that I made, right? But just understanding, like, you know what? You have these same patterns. You don't have to learn them because your vowels never change. But in the English huh. language, the vowels change. And this is how you're going to know when to say A and when to say A. When to say O oh, and when to say ah, oh, right? See, I, I didn't know that. 
Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. And then we also have some similar syllable division patterns. One of the most common ones in English is to have a vowel, consonant, consonant, vowel. And we divide those syllables between the two consonants. Same thing happens in the Spanish language. Very common, very common. So, but we don't worry so much about that because the language is so transparent. English, we say, is opaque, kind of fuzzy. We've got all <laughs> these different, but even in looking at the English language, and even looking at, you know, I always say spelling, English spelling is so challenging. But even looking at that, we have spelling patterns that transfer between the languages. So in English, how when do I use C? And right? Well, I use C if it's before A O U in a consonant. Same thing, same pattern exists in Spanish. C before A O U in a consonant. All right. Oh, but you know, there's another sound for C. It's the hard sound, well, the soft sound. So we in English say, oh, whenever C is before E or I or Y, that's when you'll say that soft sound. Same thing is true in Spanish, C before E or I. We don't have it before Y. But so it's making those connections and celebrating Mm -hmm. that the students already have that. So when a student has native language literacy, right? When I had that home language of Spanish literacy, that supports that English literacy, right? And this bilingual brain, this multilingual brain, it's an asset. And we, we, you know, it's a cognitive asset. And so let's keep, you know, I would love in our country for us to minimally achieve biliteracy. Uh, you know, I just got back from, um, you know, traveling abroad and, you know, you see these countries where they're speaking, they end up graduating proficient in three and even four languages. Wouldn't that be wonderful if minimally in the United States, we could pre proficient in two. What a cognitive advantage. But for Mm -hmm. us teaching, depending on the context, so sometimes students, you know, it would be wonderful for them to be in a dual language program. Then we could be like really making those connections and working through Mm -hmm. this, right? Simultaneously. But most children in our country are not in dual language programs. They're more like in English as a second language. And so we have to make that distinction. But no matter if you're in English as a second language or in dual language or in a bilingual program where, you know, it's moving from native home language to second language, uh, the principles apply. The principles apply of, ah, these skills are important phonological awareness and phonics to lead to fluency. And we have to be working all the while on oral language and vocabulary and thinking about being strategic in our reading um, through understanding the different text structures and how to be active strategic readers and being exposed to all kinds of genre, right? Um, So that's so important. But we do need to make the distinction what is the context for the students that we're serving? Are they in a dual language program? Are they in a bilingual program of early exit or late exit? Are they in a program where it's really English as a second language? That's a good point. And Elsa, to your earlier point, drawing on students' strengths is so important. That's what really struck me as I read the book. And I'm going to call out chapter four because that chapter, it's basically what you just verbalized, but it taught me so 
much. You know, if you're a teacher listening to this right now, chapter four is gold. I would have, I'm a, I imagine myself, I just want to share as I was reading chapter four and you've basically articulated like, you know, there's certain, um, letters and sounds and here's what's similar and here's what's different about different languages. And I was, um, I was remembering when I was taught fifth grade and I had a student walk in who only spoke Mandarin and fifth grade. So I feel like there's like a part two to the question that Melissa asked, (laughs) like Melissa asked the question about kindergarten and first grade students where you're all, I mean, they're all kind of acquiring that phonemic awareness, Mm -hmm. phonics, the foundational skills in that band. But when I was teaching fifth grade, many of my students had already acquired those skills. And so this student was coming in and I just, if I had had this as a resource, I think I would have been able to support him with filling in the gaps and seeing where the language is connected. Right. (laughs) So had you known, had you known, Lori, well, you know, Cantonese has 19 consonants, 11 vowels, right? And has some diphthongs and some syllable structures. And, you know, they have that, you know, a consonant vowel consonant pattern, Etc. that would have helped you. And it would have helped the student because you would be honoring their language and their knowledge as an asset as you were trying to help them develop the English language and English literacy. Yes. And it's walking the talk, not you know what I'm saying? We, we talk about it. Oh yes. You know, it's an asset. Oh yes. They have strengths. Oh yes. There's similarity and differences. But Mm -hmm. what we tried to do in the book is really show this is how you do that work. This is what you need to know to really make sure that you're capitalizing upon what they already know. Yeah. And I think it's really important to, to, not have the feeling I had my first year, which was like, well, if I don't know Vietnamese, I don't know what to do. Right. And, and I, I don't know if that's something that most teachers feel. Um, but, you know, a feeling of like, almost like you have to speak that language, have to know so much about that language to be able to do what you're saying versus, you know, there's a paragraph in here about Vietnamese to English that can really help me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in chapter five of the book in the phonics chapter, really talk about, hey, you can even go back and look at these patterns, but there's a website that we often use, mylanguages.org, which has all these languages and their sounds, and you can can, can look, oh, look, here they are. That so uh, That's cool. being a professional. I've got this student. I need to learn more right. about how to work in the best possible way with this student. And I've got to understand some about their language. I don't have to speak the language to know something about its structure and something about its connections to English. And so that's, that's, that's our profession. This is up to us to, uh, you know, really research that. And in the book, we, we describe some of these similarities and differences and talk about, you know, here at this website, you can get this information, go and look, but implement in this manner. That is so helpful. I'm trying not to get distracted by that website at the moment. (laughs) 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 It looks like it would be very helpful. (laughs) Um, But no, this is, that is just really helpful to hear. And I think you, you mentioned it on the other podcasts I listened to of like, this is also not something I learned in college or my teacher prep at all. Um, 
and and I think you mentioned that that this is not necessarily something that is out there for teachers all the time in their teacher preparation. So that's right. And um, what we what I mention is that if we look at specialization, for example, specialization in English as a second language or specialization mm-hmm. in dual language. We see, you know, less than 5% of educators have that specialization, right? And so then you go to the classroom and hello, I've got a diverse population of students that speak other languages. What am I to do, right? And so, you know, it's, it's my hope that more of this information will be included in pre-service education, but also yes. that as districts and, uh, and states look at, oh gosh, we've got this increased number of these, you know, what are some evidence-based practices that we know of? Now, we don't know everything, absolutely not, but we know enough uh, to know, okay, these are the kind of strategies that work with these students to get some nice outcomes, and, you know, more work needs to be done regarding really looking specifically at the student's context. And and so whenever we worked with students and we found that, wow, these these other students are really struggling and we need to, we all, we need to help them and provide some kind of intervention, some intensity in, in some of these skills that are missing. But we always looked at the context, the language of instruction model, and you have to make decisions about, okay, should I be intervening in this language? Should, you know, does that match the language of instruction? What have been the students' opportunities? Or, you know, at some point we did do a bilingual, biliterate intervention. You know, at some point, like, oh, they've got these skills. They're getting pretty advanced. Now let's start with this other skills that are in the other language that aren't as advanced. And let's really um, take it from that framework. Uh, So context matters. And knowing exactly what our students are receiving, what they have received, and maybe there's some gaps in that. And oftentimes those gaps are sometimes are fault because we changed the language of instruction model or we moved them from one model to the next model and there wasn't conti- there was gaps in that educational programming and so we we've got to really investigate and know our students but really know them and know where they are uh in their skills particularly with language and literacy Elsa I'm wondering if there are specific benefits to the different models depending on our students and where they might be. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, we tried to do some work really looking at actually the models and seeing, and, and I think we can learn a lot from, as I said, other countries that have been doing this work forever and ever (laughs) and ever and how they, you know, some of them have done it simultaneously. Some of them have done it sequentially, but what really mattered were the evidence-based practices being implemented and that authentic, intentional language development with that intentional, authentic literacy development. And, you know, so more work needs to be done in looking specifically at the models, the design of them, how, you know, what are the similarities? What are the differences? What, you know, for whom do they work best? You know, what, what, kind of student will really benefit from this? What do you 
what do you do when a student is struggling? Um, you know, but what we know is these strategies will work. And what I'm saying is that we need to make sure that we're consistent. We need to look at our own educational programming and making sure that our language of instruction model makes sense. Uh, and that it, and that we have what we don't have and what we don't know is the implementation science. We need to know more about that. You know, how are these models being implemented and with what success? And I think if you look at that carefully, we have, there's a lot of variability in the implementation and variability in, you know, how much time is spent in one language versus the other. But despite that, we know when students understand the sounds of the language, how print works, when they're working on building vocabulary and comprehension, and you're using authentic, you know, textbooks and giving them a wide range of different kinds of text, we know that that will help them in any language of instruction model. But we need more work in that, Lori, a lot more work in that area. Definitely. Yeah. I imagine it varies so much. Yes. So it's going to be really difficult work. But <laughs> what confidence. we found is when <laughs> we couldn't make sense, but we were looking at that. Okay. What was the link? We had these little iPads and we're measuring minute by minute. What was the language of instruction of the teacher? How did the student respond? And we found lots of variability in the same hallway, in the same grade level and across grade levels. Mm -hmm. And so it's so important for us to, so that we can really have better answers is to really implement as it's prescribed to figure out, oh yeah, this worked or this needs some better tweaking. But when we have so much variability, it's hard to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to take us somewhere else if you all are okay with oh, it. Oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> so I was just thinking, you know, I asked the question about if you're a you know, K2 teacher and you're focusing in on the phonological awareness and phonics. Now I'm wondering about some of the other, the other pieces. So I'm specifically thinking about, okay, now you have the decoding down, you're recognizing the words on the page, and we're getting into fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. And I, you know, looking through some, a lot of the things I saw for those, I'm like, well, this is what I would do with my non-English learners. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I said. I thought, wow, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I'm wondering, Elsa, if you can talk a bit about that, right? Like, what are some things that are like, yes, like, so, this is, you could should keep doing it, but also maybe some like, maybe you do it slightly differently yeah. if they are so, English learners. <clears throat> we know that this diverse population of students needs to always be expanding their vocabulary. All students, by the way, all students, monolingual English speakers need to be developing their vocabulary. <laughs> and you mentioned some great strategies. And so some effective word learning strategies for students who are English learners are what we call cognate awareness. And that a cognate is a word mm -hmm. that is similar in spelling and meaning. And <clears throat> oftentimes, especially across the content areas when we're studying science and social studies and mathematics, there's so many opportunities for cognate awareness, right? So really helping. And I want our students to really be 
meta-linguistic in their knowledge. So, so mm-hmm. always thinking about, hmm, do I know this word? It looks similar. And so can we make those connections? So as instructors, we should always be thinking, okay, students, what do we do? Here's this word. Is it something similar? Let's, you know, take it apart. Do you see also what we call morphological awareness, some small meaning units within the words. And 60% of the English language comes from Latin, right? And so many, about 30% Mm -hmm. of the words are cognates. And we have these word parts that directly transfer across languages and especially these Latin-based languages. And they provide... Can you give some examples? So I'm going to tell you, I love to give the... My son doesn't like it anymore. He's an adult now, but I I give an example of how in the Spanish language... So I'm going to tell you, in English, when words are like four and five syllables and they're very fancy words... They're Latin-based, mm-hmm. and they probably will relate to languages such as Spanish and <laughs> Italian, et cetera. And so one day... That's a great Yeah, tip. so one, those four that. or five-syllable words are probably Latin-based. And one day, my son, he says, he was in high school, and he says, Mom, what does the word placate mean? And I turned to him, and I go, Cuando mami te dice aplacate. And, I, and what I was saying was, every time mama, mom tells you to calm down, we say placate, aplacate, <laughs> right? So we use fancy words in our language that are very common basic words that are advanced words in English, but nobody knows to make oh. those connections. Another one, then he says, ay que fácil, what he was saying, how easy. We use facile, F-A-C-I-L-E. We use, you use the word easy, we use facile, F-A-C-I-L-E. But in Spanish, we don't have the E, F-A-C-I-L, facile. So I just want to say that we use those fancy words that are high-level vocabulary right. words of English. But even my son, oh, he didn't make the connection. And I thought I had taught him about that. And I'm like, remember, you know, think about your home <laughs> language. So the same thing for our students, Right. So when they're coming across the words, let's use those two word learning strategies, you know, is it a word that looks similar in spelling and is it similar in meaning? Because by the way, there's enough of them to where we have a dictionary called a dictionary of false cognates. (laughs) So one of the worst ones is the word (laughs) embarrassed, right? So some will think, oh, in Spanish, that's embarazada. No, that means pregnant. So it doesn't work. Or, or pie, <laughs> no, P-I- oh, P-I-E <laughs> looks similar. In Spanish, we say pie. In English, you say pie. In English, it's a dessert. In Spanish, it's your foot. <laughs> so be careful of those. But it is, but you know, when they work, when they're similar in spelling and the meaning, that's wonderful for our students. But mm-hmm. looking at those word parts and also what does that give you? You know, I think about how those word parts can help you build words, right? So, you know, I use the example of port, right? And transport, transport, transporte, transportar, right? Uh, And so these words, right? Portable, right? Portatil. All of these words, here was that root of port. And I can use it in all these ways in English and all these ways in the language of Spanish. So it's making the connections, but they also change in, oh, I'm using it as a noun. I'm using it as a verb. I'm using this as, it becomes an adverb. It becomes an adjective. So there you're getting in some even syntax knowledge. 
And I think about mm-hmm. those morphemes as not only developing our vocabulary, but I th- I'm a spelling bee, uh, I'm a spelling geek, right? So I watch the spelling bee, uh, the national spelling bee, and you look at those spelling bee champs, and what do they ask the moderator? Can you say the word? Processing the sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me the origin of the word? Through the origin, they know. Oh, how's it going to be represented? Right? If it's Greek, it'll be ph for that. F sound, right? Uh, and then they say, can you use it in a sentence? That's your pragmatics. That's your syntax. What's the part <laughs> of speech? Oh, all right. And so what they're doing is they're going through all those stages of spelling development. And one of the last stages is that morphology and morphological awareness and how that helps and informs not only vocabulary, but also spelling. And so it's just so fascinating to watch. But thinking about, all right, so, and what did I say? Semantics and morphology are components of language. And the, some of the best word learning strategies for these students include cognate awareness and morphological awareness. And it includes using these strategies across all the content areas so that it's authentic in, okay, we're talking about this subject. You know, as we're reading and learning, here are these words, anything looks similar here? Can we build from there? Uh, Because what I say is every teacher must be a language teacher and a literacy teacher. And I don't care if you're teaching science or social studies or mathematics, there's opportunities for language and literacy. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. What you just said makes me think of like strategic wordplay. Yeah. Just playing with the words in lots of different ways. I think teachers do that very naturally always, but really being strategic about it. Like if I were reading something, knowing what words to pull out, you know, like having prepared that. Looking at them. Getting the class really excited to play with those words and having some examples. And Lori, when you describe that, guess what you're teaching your students? You're teaching them by using those routines, those word plays. And I think we have some examples about how to do that in the book. But when you do that, Lori, you are teaching the students to then become independent in that and really say, oh, you know what? Ah, this can change from a noun to a verb to an adjective by adding and changing these word parts and these morphemes. And you're teaching them a strategy to help what I, and I hope that they become what I call metamorphological, right? So understanding that, oh, I can do this across languages, right? And, um, but it's really teaching them a routine that they can use as they come across these words. It's a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was also say just like staying curious and like teaching them to be curious about language. Because when you were talking, I was like, like, I know the word mal, I'm probably saying it wrong, but M-A-L in Spanish. And then I was like, well, that like connects to like yeah, malpractice, see, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Like the the prefix. I'm like, and I was like Googling it, like, does that yes, actually yes, yes, yes. Let me look it up. <laughs> and, and I just think that like also just... And- you know, building that in students too, because we don't yeah, know yeah, it all. Yeah. None of us and know I will, I will all share, of these meanings and all of Melissa, really. I will share a story with you. This is, and this person is my dear friend now, but when I, we were first starting in this work <laughs> and I love morphological awareness and vocabulary and cognates. And um, I was saying that even in young students, we can do this work like in, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade, what have you. And 
and the response of the senior researcher, which I was, you know, kind of new to the team said, oh no, you know, uh, that's not developmentally appropriate. I go, but young kids love to learn that. They love having these fancy words and knowing words that no one thinks they will and learning how to build words. And so finally in the end, we did that work. And as we saw how much the vocabulary improved by the end of the, you know, uh, school year and we continued the studies, that person said, I apologize, Elsa. You were right. Even younger <laughs> students can do that work. And, and I give the example of my, yeah. my grandson. He had come to a restaurant. He goes, then he calls me ama, you know, and I love that because it means love, right? And in other, some other languages, it means grandmother. Aww. But he says, look, I have a visor, right? And I said, oh, okay. Do you know why it's called a visor? This is, of course, this is me. And he's like, no, why? He was four at the time. And I go, because it has V-I-S, viz, and or means the thing that. So this visor Mm. is the thing that helps you to see. And do you remember you went to go visit your great grandpa in the hospital? You were the visitor, the person who went to see him, right? And then he says, oh, Amma, and Harry Potter has an invisible (laughs) cloak. When Harry wears it, you cannot see him. And I said, and what does Amma wear? He goes, what, what does she wear? Glasses to help what? Her vision, right? The glasses helps me so I can mm-hmm. see. So right there in a conversation, it was vis- visor, visit, visitor, vision. And he came up with invisible, four years of age. And the school That's would say, so oh, cool. we're always wanting so to neat. listen to little Andrew. And he's in a dual language program. And I'm like, and look at that, right? Visita, right? And yeah, invisible, so cool. right? So it, all those words also could turn into cognates. Yeah. And so um, they go, and I said, all yeah. children can do this work if you do it in fun and interesting ways. You, you teach, I mean, Lori, you were talking about playing with words. You're teaching them to love language and to love words and to love learning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to inspire and imagine those possibilities for our students. Uh, to, and, and I want to say, when we were doing some of this work, like in first grade, these students, their vocabulary levels, I mean, the district could not believe it. They, they were like at upper elementary grade level vocabulary, very, they, like, like in their achievement testing, they did beautifully. And they said, what are, what are y'all doing in there? And this is what we were doing. And we, everybody can do this. It's so much fun. And the kids love it. Um, but the other thing, you know, you mentioned about being a fourth grade, t- fifth grade, what have you, and getting on into middle school. And, and, you know, we really get into very specific vocabulary. But what I want to say about that is um, that there's um, at the University of Houston, uh, which, uh, is the Center for the Success of English Learners, CSEL.org. And this is really looking at more adolescent um, English learners like at, and looking at but so some of this work, and I had the privilege of um, working with Diane August on the, um, we were doing science, um, and I worked with her some on some of the math. And what's been so awesome is really teaching our educators how when you're teaching science, when you're teaching social studies, Sharon Vaughn and her team at UT Austin have been doing social studies. They're real. Everyone is really working on how you do this in the content areas, explicitly, systematically, mm-hmm. making them metalinguistic, metacognitive, and really still getting to the 
to the gist of understanding. And so what we found is they, they, the students increase their content knowledge, but also they include increase, you know, that language and literacy. And so that's important. So this work fortunately is continuing with this center um, uh, under the direction of David Francis as the what we call PI principal investigator. And so that will be really so much fun to, and it's just getting off the ground, but so much fun to watch that as we learn. Like I said, we have so much to still learn, but I, I love that we can do this and, and the opportunities for vocabulary and comprehension really can occur across all the content areas. So we need to see ourselves as language, literacy and content area teachers. I think that is just such an important statement. And I was always a secondary teacher where we very much like to stay in our lane yeah, of yeah. content. <laughs> um, and I think that's true. I, I hope that people listening to this know that's true for all grade levels, right. not just at the at the lower right. grades where they might teach more than we one actually subject. brought in books, you know, related to the science concepts and did some read alouds even. I mean, um, just to really extend uh, that opportunity. Here's you're learning about this, but did you know about this book? And let's see what it, they say here about this particular subject or concept. Yeah, because they are learning yeah. so much language and knowledge from these absolutely, content areas. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so that's uh, really neat. So we're excited about what that future holds. Absolutely. Um, before we start wrapping up, Elsa, is there anything else from your book, specific strategies that you just want to make sure our listeners hear? Some of the things, um, that I want to make sure of is that as we, that we're always connecting language, right. To that reading, to that spelling, to that writing. And what, one of the things that we see is Mm. oftentimes, as we we're on this research project right now called a model demonstration for dyslexia. And when, what we worked on this past year and uh, was really looking at the core instruction and what I, what we want to see is we don't want to see things. So um, I like that this work is done in isolation so that, Oh, Here's my mm-hmm. phonological awareness program. Oh, here's my phonics program. Oh, now I'm going to do right. my reading and writing. Sure. Here's, my, here's writing my writing program. program. Here's my language program. <laughs> no, that as, as we're building and working on sounds and the language and the vocabulary, we're working and connecting that to the reading, the writing, the spelling, the syntax, so that it's integrated, but that it is still in an yes. explicit and systematic, well-thought-out, well-planned model. I'm a speech and language pathologist, right? So I work with children that have language and reading and dis- learning disabilities. And so I can make, I can do even through fun read-alouds or through activities, you know, with when the students when I work with them, I already have the targets in mind. I'm going to do them in naturalistic ways. And by the end, I gave them these multiple opportunities for use. And so we have to plan out, all right, for vocabulary, you know, some will say uh, they need 
minimally 12 opportunities for use to really know that word and use it, right? How many opportunities did you create? And by the way, here's a word, writing it in a sentence and looking it up in the dictionary, and that's not an effective practice, right? We have to create the authentic Mm -hmm. use of these words and and relate it to what they're learning. And so really understanding uh, how is my lesson designed? How am I going to make that those connections, and can I do that in such in, in a manner that's very um, naturalistic and not so isolated and not connected? We have to have that interconnectedness, and that's one of the things. That's what I fussed yeah, about also, all this year, <laughs> and so that's what we worked on. Really, that interconnect. And I said, you know what? And these schedules don't make any sense to me because sometimes even your schedules ridiculous, and so yeah, no. And it's because like it was like at one point they were saying, well, we don't have time for writing. So writing will be done after school. I'm like, no, writing is integrated with everything (laughs) we do. And so we made some nice, you know, you know, just kind of shifting like a little paradigm shift in how you do this work. Yeah. I think it's so important to say that what you gave as an example earlier with your grandson, right? That vision and that whole conversation, that that is an example of an authentic word, strategic way to play with language. And that can be integrated, but you connected to his schema that he had. So he knew, you know, that he was asking about a visor and then you connected to in his, um, what, other exp- things. Like his experiences, he Harry Potter out, right? Which was pretty cool. Uh, his experiences. Yes. and um, Exactly. And we can do that right. as educators within the text right. that we're reading, within the, right. the the day, you know, and within what's going on for our students. So I just think that's so important that you did it. That That is a great example to share because he had some schema to connect to. Mm-hmm. And that's really important when I think when we're talking that's about right. an integrated that's approach. Right. So, so we really, and, and we really want our students to always be developing their language as they're developing their literacy. And then we're going to set them free. Uh, you know, when you have literacy, you are set free and you can reach yes. your dreams. So let's do this work. We can do this. Yes. (laughs) Mic drop moment right there. (laughs) But you're right. We absolutely can. And you are starting to help give us tools to do that in this amazing book. Thank thank you you for for reading and learning and sharing and uh, giving us this platform to really um, share what we've learned all through these years and I'm always about research to practice, making it uh, practical. And believe you me, I'm still a practitioner and um, still working, uh, you know, with students. And I will never give that up because I learned from them. And um, and so mm-hmm. really implementing, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I'm not doing myself. So remember, we're going to, you know. Not, we're going to walk that talk, right? <laughs> so I think that's so important. But yes. these children, <laughs> yes. they need us, and we need to be informed and highly qualified to meet their needs. And and we can do this work. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like after reading your book, after having this conversation, after listening to you on other podcasts, it just feels so much more manageable. I I feel like if I, I would not be stressed if 
an English learner walked into my classroom or, you know, I would feel like I had more tools than I had when I was teaching that fifth grade class. And I think that that is the most important thing that we're continuous. You said in the beginning, right? We're continuously learning and growing. There's, you know, pulling at the resources, like you said, that make it really practical and applicable. So I, I just, I cannot say enough great things about your book and also about you for making it so easy to connect to and understand. So thank, thank you. you. For that. Thank you so much. And once again, for uh, giving yeah. me this opportunity to share, you know, the work that I've been involved with and the team of, I've had the beautiful team of, of, you know, wonderful experts in the field and uh, we learn from each other. And we want to really make this available and practical and just really showing you, you can do this work and it's not that difficult, Um, but let's do the extra things, the extra practices that we need that are, you know, evidence-based and um, be prepared, be a prepared instructor. Yes. Elsa, we've been ending our podcasts with five rapid fire fun questions. Do you have time to do that with us? (laughs) I know we've gone a little over. All right, Lori, do you want to start us off? I will. Elsa, what do you love to read? What do I love to read? I love to read uh, biographies and uh, books on history. Nice. What do you love to watch? Oh, gosh, I love to watch a lot of things. Okay, <laughs> I'm a, I am watch HGTV, <laughs> but I also Ooh, watch yeah. historical fiction, uh, and, and I love those, and I love documentaries. Me too. What do you love to listen to? Oh, I, well, I, I love music. And you're going to crack up, but uh, my grandchildren just uh, yesterday, I had the Beatles channel. They know all the Beatles songs. (laughs) (laughs) And then my little, my granddaughter said, at the clinic, I actually saw that you had a Beatles puzzle. (laughs) I go, really? Where was that? Maybe we're going to put that one together. And I think it's so funny for this young generation to even know about the Beatles, you know, that's back in my day. A good example of music transcendence. Yes, time, yes. Right? Think yeah. about the generations, <laughs> third generation here. <laughs> well, one of my teammates has a um, seven-year-old, and his favorite song is Eleanor there Rigby. You go. And he plays it all the time. <laughs> I love it. Presley, my daughter loves Queen. Oh, I love Queen. Queen. Queen is her yes. Favorite. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah. We're constantly listening <laughs> so to Queen and jumping. When on they the get in the car, they go. They say, <laughs> so "Hey, can you put some Beatles music on?" I love it. I think I it's, it, it cracks me up, that right? So but sweet. I love that because then they'll remember me by, "Oh, Amma loved the Beatles," <laughs> yes, and I do like yes. Queen too, and, and the Eagles so much and <laughs> power and feeling and love. Uh, <laughs> All right. Next question is: What is a memory you love as a teacher? Oh or a student? my goodness. Well, I I love the moment when, you know, the children love that when they can read, but I'm going to tell this particular story about a young man that already has his MBA and um, he sees me and he goes, I'll never forget when you taught me that root port. <laughs> and, he, and he goes right outside, they were doing some construction, you go port, port a potty, let's go visit it. <laughs> 
I bet oh his smell God. had he a said lasting effect. He never effect forgot that, and he never forgot it. I'm so proud of him. You know, he's he's got That's his MBA now, and he goes, "I never forgot. I knew all those words with porn." And then you looked out the window, and you're like, "Look, porta potty. <laughs> Let's go look." Oh my God. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, my that's God. Really he, I mean, he still reminds me of that. He, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. But anyway, when he got married, I was invited to the wedding. And he tells the story. Aww. Aww. I love that. Well, the final question is, is very important. And I think that um, your answer to this will be just incredible. I know it based on the story you just told. Why do you do what you love? for education or for literacy? Oh, I love that. Well, first of all, I tell this story as a young girl. Why did I go into speech pathology? Because my father would say, right, Kosh, I'm going to sit on the chair. And I said, daddy, I'm going to fix you. <laughs> you it's not chair, it's chair, right? <laughs> uh, but then I really developed a love of language. And I wanted to learn about my language more in my culture. And I studied mm-hmm. linguistics and I studied language and became a speech pathologist. And I went to other countries to study the same and to learn about their languages and their culture and their linguistics. And it was all for my personal use for myself. But today I use that knowledge. But what I see in in my community, I live in the community that's the number one county of poverty in the United States. And when I began to see these children that were having such struggles, I realized that it wasn't things like dyslexia, that it was dystichia. And we began on a journey in 1996 to really improve that. And, you know, years later, we were national Broad Award winners, national, you know, we're really beating all the odds and doing great work. And now it's been my goal to make sure we have an expert educator all across this community, when I see if we can do this in the community of high poverty, of high numbers of students who have, you know, don't have English as their home language, that this can be done anywhere. And I say, no exceptions, no excuses. Because if we could do this work here, then I want to spread the word that look at what we did and continue to do. Now getting, you know, we're getting close you know, you think about it more than two decades and the work still continues. So we've been doing the science of reading since 1996 and having excellent outcomes, right? And I really want to see this opportunity for all children and for them to be able to have that gift of literacy so that they can learn and they can be whatever they want to be. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us so much of your time. And thank you for all that you're doing for not just English learners, but for every student to get, you know, gather literacy, to gain literacy skills. It's yes, so no. important. And we just can't thank you. And enough. I don't consider it work. And I don't sleep very much because I just am always thinking about what more <laughs> can what we do. Say, when you and sleep. I do want, I do want <laughs> to say one other thing that, um, you know, I, uh, families are a great part of this and I, um, am have, have the opportunity to work on this family literacy project with Dr. K. Widjikamore in Texas A&M. And we're really trying to work with families and showing them, you know, we, we have these rich, you know, um, 
books available. We they're going to things are available online through podcasts. But you know, one day I was saying, you know, all these things that we know work for comprehension, but we've got to get to the families and we've got to give access. And it was through the pandemic that we learned that we were the some of the top cities that's the least connected. And so we we learned from that experience and really have tried to improve that connectiveness. But you know, people say, how are you so successful? It's because my, the families are my partners and we've got to bring our families in to work with us. They are resources. They want to be involved. And when you have that, that school to home connection, that makes all the difference in the world. And so as we you know, get to do this, you know, we haven't had as much of a response as we would like, you know, it was during the pandemic, this school year, we're going to get it going and learn more. But this is so important. Families, families, make that connection to the families. Yeah, thank you for that really important point. And it was just so great to meet you today. Thank you <laughs> thank so much. Thank you. I'm glad. And thank I you know, for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank All you. All righty. Have a great rest of I your will. day. Your busy day, I should say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.